Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's private equity practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hello, and welcome to BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast. I'm Todd Kinney, National Relationship Director in BDO's Private Equity Practice, and I'm based here in New York City. Today, we're discussing the findings from BDO's Spring 2022 Private Capital Pulse Survey. Just a quick reminder that the remarks and opinions of our guests do not necessarily represent BDO's views. And with that out of the way, I'd like to introduce my first guest, Jeremy Holland, who's Managing Partner Origination at the Riverside Company. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Thanks, Todd. I appreciate you having me on and all the great work from the various BDO teams over the years. Of course, we appreciate that. Uh, Next, I'd like to introduce my second guest, Matt Siegel, who is National Partner for Private Equity Assurance here at BDO. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Todd. And always good to be with you, Jeremy. All right. Well, I think we have a really uh, interesting episode in store for the uh, listeners today. Uh, But before we dive into the main segment, maybe, Jeremy, you can tell our listeners uh, a little bit about your background, your role at Riverside. And, you know, we'd like to understand what uh, our guest day-to-day looks like. Sure. So I've been a private equity investor out of Southern California for 24 years, half in smaller firms where everyone does everything, kind of soup to nuts, if you will from finding the capital, finding the investment opportunities, completing that transaction, managing it all the way through to to exit. To today, my role at Riverside is primarily focused on business development or that front end of the process, whether that be platform investments or add-on acquisitions, and then wearing a few other hats in the firm around the exit processes and uh, franchising and a few other things. Day-to-day, we spend a tremendous amount of time working with the investment banking community, whether that's inside or outside of processes, to help us deploy that capital. So that spans from meeting entrepreneurs, attending conferences, outreach to companies that could be synergistic with our existing portfolio, really anything and everything our various fund strategies need to help get that capital put to work. All right. Well, thanks, Jeremy. It'll certainly be great to have your perspective as we dive into these survey findings. And as it'll come up, one of the major themes revealed is that fund managers are increasingly focusing efforts on ESG. And I know from our our conversations and and working with Riverside that you've you've done uh, a lot of great work in that area. So our uh, listeners will enjoy that. Matt, turning to you. Uh, perhaps you could introduce yourself uh, to our listeners and talk about your role here at BDO. Yep. No, I've been with BDO 30 plus years and I've spent the last 20 years with a focus working with private equity groups and portfolio companies. And in my role as the national assurance private equity uh, leader for the firm, I work very closely with our executive team, uh, regional management, engagement teams, account management, and you know, others that, that all touch private equity to make sure that our national private equity strategy is, is refined and uh, continuously being, you know, redeveloped and ensure that the, 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 all the professionals that are serving private equity are well aligned with the national strategy. All right. 33 years, Matt. I'm coming up on 20. That's, uh, that's pretty impressive. And I yeah. know the firm appreciates it. So I appreciate both of you 
sharing your background. So let's uh, let's start discussing BDO's Spring 2022 Private Capital Pulse Survey. So Matt, maybe you can kick things off by telling us a little bit about this survey and why the initiative uh, is important. Yeah, as part of our survey, we we have surveyed uh, broadly broad U.S. funds uh, fund managers. Our survey historically has been annual. Uh, we elected this the, the past couple of years to do biannual surveys just because of market conditions and and how dynamic they have been to collect information to be more responsive, to be more agile to to the market and our go to market strategies. This year's survey, you know, came back, you know, much differently than, than historical, um, you know, a lot more focus on ESG, a lot more focus on exit planning. And I think it's consistent with, you know, current market conditions, you know, past surveys have suggested more focus on, um, you know, resources uh, and, and other, and other things that, 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 um, you know, firms have been dealing with. So, Looking forward to sharing some of the conversations today and get Jeremy's insights. All right. I know the uh, the background on the survey is helpful for the listeners. So let's dig into the data a little bit further. One in- interesting finding is that more fund managers say the gap between buyer and seller expectations is their top challenge to closing deals. So uh, Jeremy, pivoting to you. Have you seen sellers with price expectations that are greater than what uh, buyers are willing to pay? And if so, do you expect this gap in expectations to uh, continue to be a challenge in closing deals? We certainly have for many years seen that dynamic. And the way we've addressed it is to add non-control only teams to provide flexible capital solutions to bridge the gap in these situations. So through active listening and asking nuanced follow-up questions, we can peel back the layers to understand a little bit more of what their objectives are. And in certain situations, we found there's a difference in the points of view among the shareholders. So if you have a shareholder that wants to keep growing the business to reach those outsized expectations, and another that's ready to take liquidity at a market price today, we can help them both achieve those perspectives by providing one liquidity and the other accreting ownership through a, a structured investment. Additionally, we added a B2B SaaS growth capital fund, which has been critical for helping those entrepreneurs at the smaller end of the market drive from even just a few million dollars of annual recurring revenue to get to the next level, as there's a substantial multiple expansion and resulting equity value creation if the entrepreneur can move their top line from say $3 million of annual recurring revenue to seven or 10. And so while they often get these outsized expectations because they hear multiples that larger companies were receiving, sometimes you just need to help them get from A to B to achieve those expectations. Good, appreciate the uh, perspective, Jeremy. So. Also, according to the uh, survey, fund managers identified regulatory changes as one of their top areas of concern. Uh, As we all know, in February, the uh, SEC proposed new guidance requiring more disclosures of fees and expenses while also banning certain practices. So, Matt, turning back to you, how do you think fund managers should be preparing for these regulatory changes from the SEC? Yeah, I think obviously whenever there's more regulatory requirements, there's going to be added costs. And so I think compliance and technology 
departments within private equity groups are going to be experiencing potentially um, the need for additional resources to, to, to meet these regulatory requirements. I think the larger firms, it may be less intensive because they have may have incorporated best practices already themselves uh, uh, in addressing some of these. Smaller firms may be more impacted, um, obviously, as a result of that. We're seeing lately, you know, an increased risk in cyber. You know, there's there's new proposed rules re- regarding disclosure of certain cyber um, activities, and we're definitely seeing an increase in cyber-related assistance and in monitoring, preventing, reporting cyber activities. Gotcha. Well, I appreciate the insight. So for the next question, I want to get both of your perspectives. And Jeremy, I'll, I'll start with you. With almost half of the fund managers, I think 47 to be 47% to be exact, identifying performance improvement, reducing costs, and enhancing revenue was listed as their top post MA challenge. So how do you think inflation will impact funds in the value creation and exit phase? I had dinner last night with a couple of friends at several other lower middle market private equity firms. And and this was, in fact, the topic. They mentioned that some of their exits have been postponed due to inflation. What they meant is that the price increases, the cost increases and their inputs hit their portfolio companies far faster than they were able to put through price increases to drive the the top line to make up for that, that shortfall. So they need more time for those price increases to be put through in order to demonstrate to potential buyers that the margins have recovered and are sustainable. Because if they go to sell it without having that fully affected, the buyers often are going to become very nervous and skeptical when they're looking at numbers with very heavy adjustments and pro formas. So we're, we certainly are hearing about some some delays and impacts. Yeah, Matt, I guess same same question to you. How do you see inflation impacting value creation and uh, exit planning? Yeah, I think obviously inf- the inflation is is at heights that no one in the current workforce or very few in the current workforce have experienced. And and I think some of the delays that we've been talking about are are just groups getting getting reorganized and better understanding what the real impacts are on a short term and longer term basis, so that we're not being reactive. I think what we've seen is a greater emphasis on exit planning, so starting the process much earlier to maybe better better understand what the true asset that is being you know looking to be optimized on a sale and make sure that from the planning process. Um, just better prepared and what doing what you can to create as much value as possible on exit. Those are some of the things that we're seeing. Gotcha. Well, it certainly uh, still may be a wait and see game on whether inflation will remain high and how that will impact the over economy. But uh, we, we move on. So speaking of the exit phase, one third of fund managers surveyed said they are targeting potential buyers earlier and also may be less likely to target a strategic buyer as 55% said they would pursue a sale to a financial sponsor in the next 12 months. So I I guess, Jeremy, I'll I'll go to you. What do you think is driving this trend of selling to a financial sponsor and what's causing funds to start the process earlier? Funny how times change. When I started doing this in the 90s, one of the first things I was taught was that you never buy a company from another private equity firm. 
<laughs> the thought was that so much of the growth potential would have already been realized, the business would have been optimized in so many ways that it would be more productive to focus our time elsewhere. Fast forward to today and sales between private equity firms is the norm. We've evolved as an industry in so many ways, and, and this is one of them. We've become better at due diligence and growth planning. We have more tools in our toolbox and are far more comfortable assessing the road ahead for the company and, and appreciating the value the prior owner added in terms of uh, installing best practices and creating a base for future growth. Additionally, we're now seeing private equity firms greatly value the speed and certainty provided by well-known private equity buyers. After all, private equity buyers do this for a living, whereas strategic add-on acquisition interest ebbs and flows in priority when those strategic buyers have other burning matters to attend to. So there's a lot of talk right now about how the many forms of turbulence in the economy may make bids from strategic buyers more moderate in value or even disrupt their interest at all in growing by acquisition as they address those, those other matters. Furthermore, we are now seeing private equity firms enjoy selling to another reputable private equity firm as that may provide them, the seller, the opportunity to retain a stake and continue participating in the growth of the company for years to come. Whereas with a strategic buyer, it's far less likely that the selling private equity firm would retain a stake as they may not have a clear path to a final liquidity event, which of course is, is necessary for traditional private equity funds as limited life vehicles. The pull forward in, in timing, what we're finding is by working with firms like BDO to do a sell-side quality of earnings report, prepare all the data, have a very fulsome data room process and, and everything ready to go and achieving superior outcomes. Last year was a great example where many firms ran out of bandwidth and they had to prioritize which opportunities to staff and which ones to let go. If you have all the data they need, either Consciously or subconsciously, they tend to focus on those opportunities that are easiest because the data is quality and it's so much easier to access it when you've started early. Uh, finally, the buyers have gotten so busy that they worry if they have not been tracking the company for some time that maybe others have and they might be ahead of the game. And so one strategy that private equity firms employ is to proactively entertain dialogue, have their portfolio companies present at conferences and things like that, leading up to an eventual sale to chum the waters, if you will, and, and gather interest. I certainly remember the times where it was a, a no-brainer to just go to a strategic because they were going to pay such a greater multiple than uh, a sponsor, but that's, uh, that's some really good insight. So Matt, back over to you. Any thoughts on why we're seeing uh, an earlier search for a buyer and why funds are again, more likely to target a financial sponsor? No, I think what we're seeing is more financial sponsor to sponsor activity. You know, one is the, just the amount of dry powder that's out there and the funds available to put to use. We're also seeing, a, you know, a, a, a pattern, as Jeremy was describing, that these groups get very, very structured in the processes around preparing companies for sale. You know, that becomes, if you have a good experience buying a company from one sponsor, uh, and you understand the structure and the rigor that they go through in preparing it, 
um, you know, there, there may be an interest in future transactions and we're seeing a pattern, uh, you know, a pattern of, of behavior developing there. And that's all good. I think that, that that's all good. Yeah, agreed. All right. At this point, I'd like to turn it over to our coffee break guest, Mike Williams, National Practice Leader of Income Tax Accounting here at BDO. Mike is actually going to discuss some of the, uh, the tax findings and implications from our survey. Hi, everyone. I'm Mike Williams. I'm a BDO tax partner based in Boston, and I also lead BDO's National Income Tax Accounting and Tax Risk Practices. I have a particular interest in the PE Pulse survey results because these findings help inform as to how we can continue to help companies enhance their processes related to income tax accounting and help manage their tax risk. Several themes in the survey resonated with me. The first was that exit readiness and tax optimization continue to be considered top post M&A challenges. This is unsurprising given the increasing complexity of the regulatory environment. With respect to exit readiness, there are several areas that may come into play from a tax perspective. On the tax compliance side, companies need to be current with their direct and indirect tax filings in all jurisdictions in which they operate. They need to be optimally structured and they need to be current with their transfer pricing as well as have contemporaneous documentation in place. Companies should have a sound tax policy in place, including an effective tax control framework. From a financial reporting perspective, a company's financial statements need to accurately reflect the company's tax positions. Tax accounts need to be accurately stated, including deferred tax assets and liabilities. If the company is contemplating an IPO, it will need to report on a quarterly basis. So a company should be IPO ready well before an IPO. When you consider the variety of tax-related issues that should be addressed prior to an IPO, It's clear that a comprehensive review of current tax practices is is important in ensuring that these areas are functioning effectively with minimal risk to the company is essential. Companies shouldn't ignore the potential tax consequences that can arise from improper planning. Every business decision has a tax implication, whether from a financial reporting and or regulatory reporting perspective or cash tax perspective, tax implications should be part of a company's planning process. From a tax optimization perspective, one of the most important aspects of a transaction is tax planning. Strategic tax planning in anticipation of an exit should be started well in advance. This would include planning at both the federal and state levels, and if a company is operating outside the U.S., local country planning as well. There are obviously infinite considerations. For instance, what would be more beneficial to the company, the sale of assets or the sale of stock? A company would certainly want to minimize any gain. What are the consequences to the basis in the company's assets or stock? Is there any opportunity to do some planning around the intellectual property such that a company can take advantage of future amortization deductions? The tax regulatory landscape is ever-changing, and this is adding more complexity. There's potential new tax legislation. We've all been hearing about a global minimum tax. Modeling for any potential impact on a company should be ongoing. Finally, risk exposure is clearly a top challenge. With this comes financial reporting and operational tax risk implications. I've already alluded to some of these But certainly, if there are tax risks, 
reserves may need to be considered from a financial statement perspective. Operationally, tax exposures could have an adverse impact on future cash flows. In addition, there could be unexpected demands on company resources in the event there is audit activity. The objective of a sound tax control framework is to help avoid surprises. When tax risks are identified during diligence, a company is able to assess the implications of those risks. However, there could be unknown tax risks caused by the lack of an effective tax control framework. Without an effective tax control framework in place, tax risks and exposures may not be identified. These are all areas where tax accounting and tax risk teams currently help companies manage at various levels, and we're always available to chat to discuss how we can help. With that, I'm going to turn it back to Todd. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Mike. Now back to our conversation with Jeremy and Matt. For the second half of the program, I'd like to start with uh, with Jeremy. So uh, we touched on you guys, uh, Riverside and ESG, but one of the major findings of this survey is that 50% of fund managers plan to direct the most capital towards setting up impact funds or investing in targets with ESG themes. So I know Riverside has made ESG a, a core part of its business for years. Uh, so maybe you can speak about that a little bit. That's right. ESG has been a component of our investment process and culture. Today, we're proud to be signatories to PRI, which is the Principles for Responsible Investment, and are encouraged to see many friends at other firms rapidly advancing their efforts on these important matters as well. Always love hearing about the great work you're doing at Riverside and promising to hear that more PE firms are, are certainly following your path. So we're going to stay with you, Jeremy. Another survey finding is that fund managers increasingly see ESG as a strategy for recruitment. 28% say lack of internal resources or bandwidth is a headwind to closing deals, and 49% say their main objective in developing an ESG strategy is to improve their ability to attract and retain talent. So, Jeremy, maybe you could speak about the workforce recruitment and retention strategies that uh, Riverside uses. Sure. DE&I is not only the right thing to do ethically, but it also makes us better investors. Having teammates from varied backgrounds, life experiences, and perspectives providing their input helps us all make more educated decisions. And while we have been proud of our longstanding gender balance, there is always more we can do to improve in all forms of DE&I. I'm encouraged to see the industry evolving from their rhetoric years ago about, well, there simply aren't enough qualified candidates of diverse backgrounds. And now firms like Riverside have decided to become part of the solution and specifically expanding recruiting from the smaller subset of traditional focus schools to include HBCUs as an example and other institutions. So we've seen a major shift in the recruiting strategy, but we've also seen a major break in the career path. Uh, decades ago, the career path seemed to be you had to get your training as an investment banker and then get a top tier MBA before even being considered for a role in private equity. And today, firms like Riverside are hiring directly from undergraduate programs, then investing the time and effort to train those colleagues from the ground up. This 
radically expands the pool of candidates by removing those barriers to entry. And in terms of retention, as people feel welcome, they see the value placed on diversity. They feel more welcome. They feel more heard, more comfortable sharing their points of view and and how their diverse points of view are going to make everyone better. They're more likely uh, through that comfort to to stay on board. All right. Thanks, Jeremy. Well, we've uh, reached the last question of the episode, and uh, I always like to ask our guests to uh, pull out their crystal balls. So here we go. Matt, we'll come to you first, I guess, on this one. We're now seeing private equity going beyond just strategy formation when it comes to ESG. As 99% surveyed already have a strategy in place, which is which is pretty impressive. And 50% are looking to invest the, uh, the most amount of capital in impact funds and or ESG focused targets. So with this shift, what do you uh, what do you guys think uh, comes next for ESG? How do you think we'll see the concept evolve, and what do you think ESG leaders will do differently? Again, Matt, let's go to you first. Yeah, I think generally fund managers and private equity groups are on board with the concept of ESG, and know that they have to consider or begin offering these impact funds because investors are are asking for it. I think we're going to see uh, these firms that that. Uh, are further advanced in their strategy and and the investment in these impact funds. And those that really have strong targets and strong strategies are going to be uh, a bit ahead of the game and increase their ESG ratings. Uh, I, I think with that said, that there's going to be more monitoring and more crackdown to ensure that those that are out there with their impact funds and their strategy that they're actually uh, operating consistently with those strategies and with that investment thesis. You know, the challenge there, and we've seen this in certain, you know, SEC proposals is what is that monitoring going to consist of? You know, is there going to be any standardization um, in, in, in what benchmarks should be uh, relating to ESG? And I think that's going to be very interesting uh, in the very near term. You know, some of these SEC proposals, and we touched upon them earlier, we don't know when they're going to be adopted and what what form um, ultimately the final um, regulations are going to be. But I do think a good part of those relating to ESG is 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 going to require certain monitoring. There is some feedback that we've heard that that as this monitoring and as the as the uh, disclosure becomes more standard that there may be it may make sense to have disclosure separated between environmental uh, social governance as opposed to a, an aggregate ESG rating. I think that would provide investors um, you know much more visibility and transparency into what companies across varying industries are are really are really doing from an ESG perspective. Um, but again, with that said, there's going to be an increased cost and a level of complexity and compliance and, and um, not just information gathering, but monitoring and then benchmarking against, you know, expectations. It's going to be pretty interesting and very challenging in the future. I was just going to say very interesting. Pretty good, pretty good insight and forecasting there, Matt. So, Jeremy, same question to you. 
What do you uh, think is next for private equity and ESG? I agree with Matt. There's a great opportunity for the industry to better measure and report to LPs the ESG and diversity, equity, and inclusion data. Many firms have been doing the right thing for a long time, but they may not have been collecting the data on a consistent basis to better articulate that to the limited partner community. Additionally, it's important that we explain these initiatives to all of our constituents, including the portfolio companies, the employees within those, the folks on Capitol Hill, so they can better understand how private equity is not only making companies bigger, but better in so many ways. It's great that we create jobs and generate, but there's so much more that we're doing and a consistent practice of, of measuring and reporting that will help everyone see what we're doing. All right, guys. Well, you both provided uh, a lot of great content and uh, trust me, I've done a bunch of these. So that's uh, good stuff. I appreciate it. And that's going to wrap it for this episode. So uh, Matt Siegel and Jeremy Holland, I really uh, appreciate uh, both of you joining me today on BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast. Thanks, Todd. Good seeing you, Jeremy. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Always good to see you both. Yeah, we certainly value our relationship with uh, the Riverside Company. So thank you. Uh, to our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. Please be sure to check out BDO's Spring 2022 Private Capital Pulse Survey on BDO.com's private equity page. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, this is BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms. 